Life on Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Chapter 5 Youth and Manhood The journey of Jesus to the Passover in Jerusalem at the age of twelve forms a natural division between his boyhood and manhood. His simple questions to his worried parents in the temple revealed his consciousness of his identity and his willingness to respond to the demands of his Father in heaven. He recognised that the first phase of his obedience led him back to his mother's home and Joseph's bench. Thither he returned with a new sense of vocation. Those eighteen silent years were not lost. They were the source of much of the wisdom and strength that were concentrated in the arduous years to follow. The roots of knowledge, of devotion and of sacrifice grew strong and deep in the rich soil of Nazareth. There he extended and quickened his understanding of God's law. He learned with steady concentration the mission and the destiny of Messiah and the price that would be demanded of him. He grew in his appraisal of men until he could penetrate their hearts and read their motives. As year succeeded year, so his life grew richer, his communion with his father deeper and his preparation more complete. Looking back from the strains and tensions of his active ministry, we feel the contrast of those unruffled years in Nazareth, where, in the quiet harmony of his godly home, Jesus grew strong in mind and body. With Mary's gentle spirit and Joseph's sense of justice and rectitude, he would live in an atmosphere of peace and joy. The fruitfulness of those silent years can be felt rather than seen as we turn the Gospel page. The deep and wide knowledge of the scriptures Jesus possessed leads us back to the years of diligent study which preceded his ministry. Whether he was protecting himself against the insidious attacks of the tempter, comforting those in need, exhorting his disciples or rebuking his enemies, Jesus had constant resource to the Word of God. Time and again he quoted from memory, and many of his allusions show that he knew not only the Greek translation of the Scriptures, but that he had studied them in the original Hebrew. A footnote here reads, and it mentions, Matthew 5 verse 18 and Luke 16 verse 17, these words imply that Jesus read the scriptures in the square characteristics of the original Hebrew. It should also be noted that the scribes always quoted scripture in the original Hebrew, and it was only on that common ground that Jesus was able to meet their constant challenge. This fact gives added weight to his frequent question to them, Have ye never read? To return to the text, his constant reading and meditation showed him the nature of his work and prepared him for the full authority which he had to manifest 
and the claims he was to make when, anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went forth among men with the cry, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Psalms, which so often reveal the beauty of Christ's inmost spirit and the intense fervour of his love for God and devotion to men, surely reflect truly the work of these years of reading and contemplation. Reading the 119th Psalm, we feel the full effect upon his maturing spirit, reaching its highest note of exaltation in the memorable words, Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes alway, even unto the end. In the light of his perfect dedication, it seems almost presumption to hear in these words anything but the consecrated aspirations of the Son of Man. But the preparation of Jesus was not completed by his knowledge and love of God's law. It was necessary that he should experience that personal communion with him which kindled the covenants of the written word into a living fire. As the first Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, so the second Adam found understanding and strength in the midst of his father's creative handiwork. There on the hilltops of Nazareth he would learn that the great creator who telleth the number of the stars, and calleth them all by their names, was also the loving Heavenly Father who healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. Day by day, in the silence of God's presence, he would strengthen those cords of love that were to give him that unique sense of union with his Father, which flowed from his every word and action. His whole attitude was intent as though listening for some sound, which as yet he could scarcely hear, but which, when he heard, he was determined to receive, and receiving to transform human destiny and bring an unearthly and eternal beauty into the lives of men. The Lord God was giving him the tongue of the learned to speak a word in season to him that was weary. He was preparing his mind and body for a living sacrifice. These long and sacred periods of communion are reflected back into the quiet years from the pages of the Gospel, where each great crisis in his life finds or leaves him praying, and we have the silent eloquence of the picture of a tired figure making his way up into the mountain at the close of a busy day to renew his strength and courage in the sacred presence of his Father. In this too, David's lips express the deep emotion of his greater son when he cries, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him.
These spiritual vistas expanding before him did not take Jesus from the carpenter's bench. There was waiting for him there a preparation which, if it was less satisfying, was scarcely less important. From the absence of any reference to Joseph after Jesus was twelve, it seems probable that he died sometime during these eighteen years, and Jesus would have upon his young shoulders the responsibilities of the home. It would be an invaluable experience to him in his ministry, bringing with it understanding of the domestic and practical difficulties that he was constantly called upon to solve. The carpenter's bench kept him in touch with men. Only those who have lived in the village can realise what an ideal place it is from which to study human nature. There is little evidence of the polished veneer of urban life. Truth is not masked in conventional insincerity. There is a directness and intensity in human relationships which exposes men's hearts and scorns to hide their motives. Love and hate, good and evil, sorrow and joy stand revealed to all who pass by. Subtlety plays little part in village life. Relations are plain and direct. Goodness is simple and pure. Evil is often stark and elemental. It would be hard to find a greater contrast between the suave, learned, aristocratic Sadducee in Jerusalem and the homely peasant of that small town of evil repute in Galilee. Jesus mingled with these men and women. He knew their difficulties. He shared their joys and sorrows. He encouraged their victories and checked their failures. With his inspiring personality, visitors to the carpenter's shop would forget his youth and discuss their problems, seeking his advice and intervention. His parables show us that his knowledge extended beyond his own craft. He knew all about farming. He saw the ploughing of the land, the sowing of the seed, and the gathering of the harvest. He knew the rugged sincerity of the shepherds and their ways with the sheep. We can imagine him leaving his own work to help some heavily pressed farmer to gather his crops, or to stride out over the hills with a shepherd to help him find some straying sheep. Deeper than all their external struggles, emphasised by their grief, but not hidden by their laughter, Jesus would discern the deep need of men. It was a need older than Nazareth, extending back through the ages to Eden itself. It was the need for God. His life's work was to satisfy that need, and with that satisfaction came a peace and a joy that no man could give or take away. Early in his record of Christ's ministry, John said of him, He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The years at Nazareth were an early contribution to that knowledge. Faced with the heroic obedience of Jesus, his increasing devotion and holy aspiration, 
we often feel dismayed at the feebleness of our discipleship. His very purity appalls. In the homely life at Nazareth, we can discern the true principles of preparation for our Heavenly Father's service. We can follow him in those years of diligent study and meditation upon God's word until we experience with him those ecstatic feelings of delight in its precepts and promises. Most of us are denied the beautiful vistas from the hills of Nazareth, but we're not denied the gracious privileges of prayer and communion. And Jesus has sanctified manual labour with his own toil-hardened hands, showing how the everyday intercourse of a busy shop may be a necessary part of the training of a child of God. If we follow him in Nazareth, we shall be ready, if the call comes, to follow him out into the wider spheres of service. If that call to larger service is not for us, we can remain with him at Nazareth in the assurance that his life there was rewarded by the commendation of his father as he passed beneath the waters of Jordan. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was waiting for that call to larger service. His mind had been prepared by meditation and prayer. His experience of men had revealed their strength, their weakness and their need. His body had grown strong and vigorous in readiness for the privations and rigours of the years to come. When that preparation was complete, the call came. Over the Galilean hills from the Jordan fords came the news of John's preaching, and Jesus knew. We picture him striding resolutely away into the hills, leaving behind a mother whose tear-dimmed eyes betrayed the anguish of the sword thrust that had begun to pierce her heart, but whose brave smile and waving hand proclaimed her still the handmaid of the Lord.